Well, how are we doing this morning? Uh, you haven't had your coffee yet, huh? So let's try that again. How are we doing this morning? There we go. All right. My name is Charlie, if uh, we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet. I'm here serving uh, as an intern, uh, helping uh, Mike, and I'm actually really happy to, to come up here this morning and give Mike a break, so he could, he's probably at home laid out on the sofa taking some Advil and, and resting. If you ever moved, that's always a, a wonderful adventure. So to get things uh, rolling here, if you would turn to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. I'll be reading from the ESV, if you have a different translation. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning to wrestle with the question of doubt and unbelief and faith in the midst of life's trials and uncertainties, Lord, I pray that your word would speak true. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and our trust in in your word and in you. And Father, more than anything else, Lord, I pray that we would we would feel free to give voice and to express our doubts and our fears and concerns before you because, Lord, you love us. Your commitment to us is steadfast. And our hope is in Christ Jesus who, has, who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I may, I may have shared this story uh, previously, but in 2005, I believe it was, after a season of just prayer and wrestling through some things, we felt uh, that God was calling us to take a step of faith. And, and that step of faith required me to resign my position as a youth pastor at a church in Tennessee, to sell our house, and then to relocate back to Florida, actually here toward the Orlando area, to begin a process of searching out what, uh, what God had in store for us with respect to actually starting a church. And so we didn't have all the details, we just knew and felt confirmed that this is what God was calling us to. And uh, we, had, we had shared this with friends and family, um, we had received a lot of affirmation in this regard, there was a lot of excitement, we were hopeful, we were optimistic, and so we made uh, plans for this transition, we started kind of moving, moving through, following through on all these decisions that we had to make, and then the economy crashed. So I don't know if you remember 2005, when the real estate market, the, the bubble burst, and so now, mind you, our plan at this point, I had already resigned my job, and now I had to sell my house. It's a great time to sell your house, right? Right after the real estate market busts. The house went from premium to pittance. You know, fortunately for us, it was a, it was a foreclosure, so we had more equity in it than you might normally have, but we still, I think, lost somewhere around $10,000 in equity on the sale of the house. And then, uh, 
and we were moving to Orlando. So if you were here in 2005, you remember how bad Orlando was? Orlando was like ground zero for the real estate bust. And so then my plans for finding a job here in Orlando <laughs> became a wish dream because nobody was hiring. Nobody was hiring. And so for us, it made this experience, if I could kind of use an analogy, I felt like a kid who was learning to ride his bike and his dad put him on the bike, took him out in the street, got him going, and shoved him into traffic. Perhaps you've had a similar experience, right? You were really seeking God on something. You felt sure of what he was asking you to do. You believed God had asked or required something of you. You took a step of faith, and then after you began to take those steps of faith, instead of things working out in all the ways that you thought and anticipated they would, it seemed like everything around you fell apart. You ever have that kind of experience? And if you're like me, when that happens, you go, okay, listen, if God was in control, this would not be happening, right? Because clearly, clearly he's on vacation, he's taking a nap, he's not paying attention, and maybe he doesn't love me, maybe he's forsaken me, maybe he's forgotten about me, because if he loved me and cared about me, he wouldn't be letting me go through this right now. Well, this experience of doubt, this experience of frustration, this experience of despair, and even what I would say unbelief, is something that's common to all of God's people in this life. And the text, the psalm that we're looking at here this morning, a psalm of David, actually gives voice to and offers guidance for us in times like this. Now, with respect to Psalm uh, 13, we don't really know uh, the, the specifics in terms of what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm. Uh, we do know, for example, however, that there are, there are a number of events that could qualify, but because the psalm uses kind of general language that's really unspecific, uh, you could kind of apply it in multiple situations. And the beauty of this is it allows us to appropriate the psalm for our own experiences in life, and I think this is one of the things that God intended but for maybe just helpful frame of reference, I think a really good time in Saul's life that, that fits kind of the, the language that's there is when uh, David had been anointed king by Samuel. And so if you're familiar with the story, God's rejected Saul, Samuel's sent, he finds David, anoints him as king, and then David begins to rise in prominence before the eyes of the nation of Israel. And as a result of this, Saul is provoked to jealousy and envy. And then eventually starts trying to kill David. So then David, who's supposed to be the king, is now fleeing and living in the wilderness as a criminal and as a fugitive, while Saul and his armies are pursuing him and trying to kill him. So now if you put yourself in, in, in that frame of reference, God's called me to be king, like he did that, and if that was happening, why is all this going on now? doesn't make sense, does it? So just like David had those kinds of experiences, and I think this psalm fits that, we too have those experiences. So, ready to dig in? All right, so first thing, first thing we need to, to kind of understand from this psalm, the first key point is this. When you can't see how God is in control, exercise faith by questioning him. When you can't see how God is in control, exercise faith by questioning him. We see this in the first two verses of Psalm 13. What does he say? He asks questions, right? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? You see, there are going to be times in life where it feels, where it seems as though, where on all evidence, when we look at the circumstances of our life, it appears as if God is absent, that he has abandoned us, that he has forgotten us. And this is exactly what David is giving voice to in, in, for example, verse 1, where he says, he asks, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide your face? And this image of God hiding his face is one that, that shows up in multiple psalms. So, for example, you'll find it in Psalm 27.9. You'll find it in Psalm 44.24. You'll find it in Psalm 69.17 and others. So it's not just a one-off kind of thing. It's a theme. It's an idea, a concept that we find coming up over and over again throughout the psalms. Where are you, God? Why have you hidden your face from me? And what this conveys is a sense of losing God's favor and of God not being present or acting upon your behalf. You ever felt that way? I have. Maybe you feel that way right now. What's interesting, though, is David also gives voice to the, to, to, to the experience of racing and anxious thoughts that one can experience in times of crisis and doubt. And you see this in verse 2. He says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart. It's a picture of desperation where your mind is bouncing back and forth. So for example, if you've ever had something kind of happen, some tragedy or some some circumstances befall you, and you start kind of running through in your head all these scenarios, you make these plans, okay, well, if I can do this, and if this comes through, then I can do this, and then, but if that doesn't happen, then I can try this, and I'll try, and and your head starts bouncing back and forth trying to find solutions and answers. And what ends up happening is you begin to realize, I, I can't fix this. This is outside of my control. And, and you have all this anxiety and this fear that starts to run off in your head. Am I the only one that does this? And so David's giving us a picture of what that feels like, that, that trepidation, that anxiety, that, that paralyzing fear that can sometimes grow in our hearts as our mind pings back and forth trying to find solutions for, for circumstances that we have no power to fix. Financial tragedy, health issues, family things, all kinds of manner of things that, that come at us in this broken life that we are powerless to do anything about. And if that weren't enough, there are enemies who are behind the hardships that, that underlie these questions that, that, that David is giving expression to in Psalm 13. You see this, for example, in, in verse 2. He says, how long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, who or whatever these enemies are, we don't necessarily know who they are, but they have hostile intent and they mean to cause harm. And so one of the examples out of David's life that I mentioned before is it could be Saul and his armies that are, that are chasing after David to kill him. And so my guess is you don't have a mad king and his armies pursuing you, but you might now or have previously experienced maybe a hostile coworker or even a hostile family member. Or maybe you've got a neighbor that, for whatever reason, has just taken up a hobby of of making your life difficult. But we've all had experiences of betrayal, of broken trust, of individuals who, for whatever reason, have chosen to pursue our demise. Now, what's interesting, and this is the thing I think we need to understand, is that these pointed questions 
that David is asking, that the psalm gives voice to, are sharp and profound expressions of doubt in the midst of crisis. And sometimes I think we get conditioned into thinking that if we have faith in Jesus, if we have faith in God, it means that we can't feel or experience profound doubt, unbelief, and we can't question God. But listen to what uh, Gerald Wilson says in his commentary. Because he says that far from being a contradiction to faith, this is what living faith actually looks like in times of trial. He says this, this kind of questioning, flung in the face of God as it were, is a product of and a response to the experience of the hiddenness of God who refuses to appear and act as humans expect and desire. Rather than information, these questions seek divine presence and action on the questioner's behalf. Such questions reveal a faith seeking to understand in the midst of painful experiences that shake the very foundation of believing. You see, faith is not to ignore our doubts. Faith is not to ignore our fears. Faith is not to ignore our frustrations and concerns when we feel as though God has turned his face away from us, when we feel as though God has forsaken us, when we feel as though God has forgotten or abandoned us. Faith is bringing these very questions and laying them at God's feet. And I wouldn't even say laying them, I would say throwing them at God's feet. That's what an active faith looks like in times of trial. And so my, my first question for all of you this morning is what might like, what might like, can't speak, what might that look like for you today, for you this morning? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel defeated? Do you feel forgotten? Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel shelved by God? Have circumstances, has some sin, has Satan or men set themselves against you so that when you look at the, 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 the details of your life, you draw the conclusion that clearly God is either not in control or he doesn't like me or love me very much because if he did and if he was, then none of this would be happening. I would say exercise faith then by laying hold of God. Grab hold of him and cast and throw your doubts and your questions upon him. You see, one of the dangers, I think, that is that un, unspoken doubt if we don't give voice to our doubts, if we don't give expression and release to the things that we struggle with, that doubt can oftentimes morph into bitterness. In my own life, and I'll just share this honestly, there, there was a season of life where things got really hard, and it got really dark for me. Really, really dark. I was a late convert, and my first entrance into faith kind of came through philosophy. And so when things got really bad for me, this is how, this is how my head worked. I was so angry and so bitter that I wasn't just wanting to walk away from God. I wanted to tear other people's faith down. This is all internal. I never gave expression to this during that time. I have later. And you're like, wait a second. This is a guy who served at a pastor, and he's a, he's a theological student in RTS, and he's telling me that he wanted to actually actively work against God and other people's faith? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not alone in this. And I'm only sharing this to give you guys context to understand doubt and, and unbelief are things that we will all be beset with. And if we don't give expression to that, if we don't figure out how like David did to cast these 
doubts, these questions that we have at God himself, then we're going to turn inward. We're going to cut ourselves off from God. And those doubts and those, those things are going to morph into bitterness and anger, and we're going to harden our hearts. You have to realize it's okay to not be okay. Because newsflash, none of us are okay. But faith doesn't just stop with questions. It progresses. It moves. Faith, faith is something that's active. It's not just what we believe, but it's that our belief translates into a disposition towards activity or movement. And it seeks after God. It pursues God. Faith is, faith is the kind of thing that says, you're not getting off the hook. I'm coming after you. And so this is the second thing. When you can't see how God is in control, second main point, when you cannot see how God is in control, exercise faith by calling upon the Lord. When you can't see how God is in control, exercise faith by calling upon the Lord. We see this in verses 3 and 4. He says, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. So here we see the questioning taking a turn, and it turns towards what? A request. Turns towards a request. And in verse 3, what's interesting is that many of the translations actually soften and kind of obscure the plain reading of what's underlying the text in the Hebrew. And so like the ESV that I just read says, look on me and answer, but a more literal translation would be this. Look! Answer me! It's this intense, imperative, emotional, declarative cry. It's not this meandering and placid and halting God, if you could and have the time and might find it so favorable, could you please, only if you want to, sort of request. David is saying, stop looking away from me. See me. Look at me. Show me your face. Answer me. It almost feels presumptuous and disrespectful to be that forward and blunt, doesn't it? But the only reason this, this kind of request feels that way is because we can't grasp the kind of love that God actually has for us. You see, David is making this request from a place of intimacy and covenantal love. And we see this in, in language that's coming through. He uses the covenantal name of God, which is Yahweh. Our English translations use the word Lord. It's always in capital. Very often if you read the What's at the beginning, the introduction? There's normally a, a translator's preface or whatever, and they'll tell you that in cases where, the, where God's proper name is used in the Old Testament, they'll use the, the word Lord. And so David is calling upon God using his personal covenantal name, Yahweh. And he also calls him what? My God. It's very personal, isn't it? My God. And so David's cry is coming from a place of covenantal intimacy, and love, and security. Not because David thinks he's great and good, but because he recognizes that God is great and good, and God is faithful, and God is loving. 
And so oftentimes we, we don't think that we can come to God. We don't think that we can run at God like this. We don't think that we can be that blunt, that forward, that expressive with God because it feels improper, it feels inappropriate. But what if God loves you that much? And what if God actually wants you to come to him in these ways? One of the most profound, I think, expressions of this is found in Jesus' teaching that when we address God, we should address him as what? Say it louder. Father. The disciples said, hey, when we pray, how should we pray? He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Now, I want to recognize that many of us maybe didn't have really good dads. They may have been neglectful. They may have been harsh or angry. They may have had their issues to work through. So I don't want to ignore that reality because very often our experiences with our earthly parents shape how we view God. But the thing we need to understand is that our heavenly father is not like our earthly dads. He is perfect and he is good and he is true. And there may be things that we need to work out to to be able to see this. But I think one thing we can all grasp and understand is that regardless of the kind of dad we had, we all see and recognize that there is an ideal sense or an ideal type of father that is loving and cherishing and caring of their children. We all understand this, I think, on an intuitive level. Like my youngest son, I just turned five, um, when he wants my attention, he does not give a rip about propriety. Doesn't care. In his head, he just gets this, I want my dad's attention. Dad could be in the bathroom, dad could be talking with somebody, dad could be in front of the church speaking, and he's not going to care. All he knows is, I want dad's attention, and I want it now. If you've had children, you've experienced this. And that's such a beautiful picture of, I think, how we're supposed to think of our relationship with God as our father, that we can run to him, we can be forward, we can be blunt, we can be expressive, we can come to him with our, with our concerns and our, and our cries for attention, because he's our father. And at the end of the day, who are we really fooling when we're trying to pretend like that's not going on in our hearts? I mean, he is omniscient, which means he knows everything. And so when we're filtering out the things that we're really feeling and thinking, is that really helpful for us and, and for our relationship with God? Or do you think that just puts a barrier between our sense and experience of intimacy with God? Because we're trying to pray in the right way and, 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 and make sure we don't offend God. Like, he sees your heart. He knows what's going on there. Like, so how silly is it of us to try and hide all of those things? And even more so, and this is the real tragedy, we hide it from one another. Like in, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he says, if you think that you can come before God and confess your sins, and yet find it more difficult to confess your sins to your fellow sinners, you misunderstand something. Again, it's okay to not be okay. And newsflash, none of us are okay. So why do we do that? When you're feeling overwhelmed by circumstance, sin, Satan, or men, exercise faith by calling upon the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will answer and grant relief. I found this uh, in my own life. There was an experience we had. It was after that move. And uh, I, remember, I remember the day clearly. I'd, I'd written our, our rent check. 
and it cleared, and I looked in our checking account, and I had $6. Five and change. I rounded up. I had six bucks. No job, no source of income, no promise of income. And I had, at the time, Aaron, two boys, we haven't had our third yet, and I think two or three young adults living with us. It was this crazy, like, we had these young adults that we were in relationship with. They had traumatic stuff going on in their life, and we're just like, move in with us. We don't know how we're going to make it work, but we love you, and where you're at's not good. Come live with us. Just a whole crazy experience. And when I'm looking at a checking account going, I've got $6. How am I going to feed these people? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to pay the electric bill? And I had, it's the only time this ever happened to me. I had, a, I had a literal panic attack. I couldn't breathe. Hyperventilated, started getting lightheaded. And uh, I think Erin looked at me. She goes, are you okay? And I, I didn't even speak. I just like shook my head. And I went in the back room and I shut the door and I locked it. And I, and I literally fell on the ground. I fell on the ground, fell on my face, and I started weeping in just like this panicked, like heaving, sobbing kind of fear. And I cried out to God. And I was like, God, we came here because you, like, and I was a little more blunt in the language even I was using. Because I was like, God, you lied to me. You deceived me. You're, you're not trustworthy. Like, that's what was coming out of me. And in that moment of raw honesty, with God where I was calling out to him and crying out to him because I was so confused because none of what I was experiencing made sense of my understanding that God was faithful and true and loving and considerate and cared for and took care of his people. In the, in the, in the midst of that turmoil, I had this overwhelming supernatural peace just come over. I'm getting goosebumps now when I think about it. And I can't, I can't give you a reason for it. I just had this peace just whoosh, wash over me. All the fear went away, all the emotional turmoil. Like, I, it was just, I had this deep conviction. It's going to be okay. Like, it's going to be okay. Didn't know how. I just, I came out the door, and, and I just felt totally different. And then we get a, literally, within an hour, we get a phone call. And some things came through with some tax stuff, and I went from having $6 to, like, I think $7,000 in our checking account. So call upon the Lord. Maybe he will grant relief. But if you've walked with the Lord and you have any sense of things, and even if you've read the Bible, we know that it doesn't always work out that way, don't we? So call upon the Lord because perhaps he will grant you strength to endure. Think of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-10, through 10, talks about this thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with God three times to remove, and God said what? Nope. My grace is sufficient. I hear you, Paul. I love you, Paul. But no, I'm not taking that thorn away. Because in the midst of that struggle, that suffering, that, that tension, that, that, that frustration, that pain, that discomfort, that unease that you feel because of that thorn, my grace is sufficient. I'm going to give you the strength to endure. We don't like those answers as much, do we? When God says, nope, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to enable you to endure. I'm going to give you the strength that you need. I don't like that very much, God. Or perhaps the Lord's answer will bring ultimately you fully into his presence. This is the least popular of the way God sometimes answers our cries. But we see this, I think, exemplified in Stephen. In the book of Acts, I believe it's in chapter 6, um, where he, he has a vision of Christ before a crowd stones him to death. 
Now, we read that and we're like, okay, options, I'll take one and two, please, and not three. But if you've read the Bible and you've lived your life with Christ for any length of time, we begin to realize that sometimes God doesn't always answer in the ways that we want. But the thing we need to understand, because one aspect of God is that God is faithful both in life and in death. Life and in death. And last time I checked, the statistic holds pretty true that everyone who's born will die. So our faith in God needs to be for this life now, but also into eternity. And the hope that we have and the promise that we have is in Christ, who, guess what, conquered the grave and rose in victory and in vindication over sin, death, and Satan. So even if God's answer to us is to bring us home into his presence, we can rejoice in that. I'm not saying we like it. We've all lost friends and loved ones. Death still plagues us. And until the new, until the redemption and restoration of all things, death will be a thing. That is the final thing that Christ will conquer and the grave will be done away with. But nevertheless, we need to understand that God is faithful in life and in death. And so when we cry out to God, Sometimes his answers will grant relief, sometimes he will grant the strength to endure, and sometimes his answer shall be to bring us fully into his presence. That's a hard amen to say to that. But sometimes we ask for an answer and we get what? Silence. God doesn't respond. So what do we do then? What if God tarries? What then? And this is the third thing, final point. When you can't see how God is in control, exercise faith by waiting on the Lord. When you can't see how God is in control, exercise faith by waiting on the Lord. We see this in verse 5 and 6. So here he makes a shift, right? First he was bringing his complaint, then he was bringing his requests, and now he brings this confession of faith. He says, but I trust, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You see, our God is faithful, and he is the keeper of covenants and promises. He's not like you and I. He doesn't make promises that he breaks. Now, the bigger issue is that sometimes we think that God has broken promises that he's never actually made. So like when life gets difficult or hard, you know, things beset us and we think that somehow God has betrayed us. Look, I understand that. I empathize with that feeling. But we also have to be honest that there is nowhere in God's word that he promises us a life of ease and comfort. In fact, he actually warns us uh, where we're told that if anyone seeks to faithfully follow Jesus, you're going to experience persecution. Scripture actually gives us the truth, but sometimes we don't really want to embrace or receive that, and so we get mad at God for breaking promises that he never actually made. But he's the keeper of covenant and the keeper of promises. And we see this in verse 5 where we have this description of God's unfailing love, and it's a comment on his character as faithful. And it's because of who God is that we can trust him, even if he seems to be delaying in his response. Because trusting in God also means trusting in his Timing. Trusting in his timing. Now, this is really difficult for us because waiting can be really hard. 
Um, my youngest son, I love it sometimes because the brutal honesty. I remember he wanted something and we're like, no, 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 you got to wait. And he's like, I don't want to wait. He's like, no patience. Waiting is hard. And I just laugh. I'm like, yeah, it is. Guess it's going to be that way for your whole life. But we are so conditioned for um, instant gratification today. So we've got high-speed internet. Like, I remember before internet, and I remember dial-up. I remember on dial, like when dial-up first came out, you have that screeching noise as you're signing on the internet, and it would take like a minute for a web page to load. And that's just letters, no pictures, no... Im- like, forget it if there was an image or a picture. Then you got to watch the image load like one line at a time all the way down. It's like, I'm going to go make my lunch, and by the time I get back, it'll probably be done. Now we've got like instant movies, instant everything via the internet. It's crazy. It's crazy. And what about same-day delivery? Same-day, two-day delivery. Amazon's really good at kind of pushing this. I mean, we get inconvenienced and upset when we order something from the other side of the planet, and we have to wait 10 days for it to get here. Like, you plug in the order, you pay the money. 10 days! This is ridiculous! I should have it now! It's like, you do realize it's coming from the other side of Earth! Or fast food. This is crazy. You can order a hamburger and get it in 90 seconds. 90 seconds for a hamburger. That's amazing. And then we get mad because they left the pickle on. Like, hey, when I ordered my hamburger, I said no pickles. There's a pickle here. It's like, you got a hamburger in 90 seconds. You should just be happy it's cooked and not mooing at you. We're so impatient and so conditioned for immediate gratification because of the world we live in. But God doesn't work on our timetables. Our tendency is to interpret God's delay as his dismissal. And we can doubt God's love and faithfulness when he's slower to respond than we think he should be. And very often the thing that we need to understand is that there's great purpose in God's timing. There's great purpose in God's timing. He may be testing you. He may be growing you in the midst of that waiting. Because what God is seeking to do is to mature you so that your faith is not based on his immediate response, but on the, the understanding that God is faithful. And I can wait forever for his response because he will respond. And so God is trying to condition us to trust him. And just like the psalm guides us, we must recall God's unfailing love and salvation. What more proof do we need than that God's dispos- or that, what more proof do we need of God's disposition towards us than that he gave his own son so that we might have life, eternal life? If Jesus gave up his life for yours, don't you think that Jesus values and treasures your life? I mean, if he died for you, doesn't that tell you something about the value he, he gives to you in being willing to die to reconcile you to himself? But it's so easy to lose sight of these things. I would really encourage you, um, if you have never heard of this man, a gentleman by the name of George Mueller, I think I may have mentioned him before, but he operated an orphanage. I can't remember the dates, but it was over in England. And his, his conviction grew that he wanted the, the orphans that he was caring for to know that God was faithful to provide. So his way of leading the orphanage was by faith. He trusted God for provision. And there's all these crazy stories of God's timely provision for food, for money, for all these other things. And, and the reason he wanted to do this is so that through him, the, the orphans that he was caring for could see 
and could tangibly experience. God does take care of his people. And in this book, uh, in his book, he writes this. He goes, when sometimes all has been dark, exceedingly dark, judging from natural appearances, when I would have been overwhelmed in grief and despair if I had looked at things according to their outward appearance, at such times I have sought to encourage myself in God by laying hold in faith of his mighty power, his unchangeable love, and his infinite wisdom. I have said to myself, God is able and willing to deliver me if it is good for me, for it is written, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? As I believe this promise through his grace, my soul was kept in peace. And I find it amazing that a man who experienced God's profound provision through faith would oftentimes find himself returning to the basic truth of the gospel. God gave his own son. And if he would do that for me, how much more can I have confidence that God will care for me now? In life and in death. And so to encourage our faith, we can and should look back to previous times where God has shown himself faithful. So if you're in a time of turmoil, if you're in a time right now where the seas are rough and you're trying to get your bearings and you feel as though God has forsaken you, I would encourage you, look back. Like, has there been a time where you've experienced a similar sort of experience where God came through and showed himself faithful? I call these things markers of faith. Because we can look back and we say, okay, 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 okay. I doubted him then and he came through. Now, he didn't come through in the way I thought he would. He didn't come through in the timing or any of the ways that I thought he should. But nevertheless, he came through. And I can look back now with hindsight, which is 2020, and see how God was in the midst of that to bring about even greater things for me than I thought that he was going to bring or, or, or possible for myself in that time. And so by looking back, we can give perspective to our current experience and then look ahead, trusting that God is going to come through for us now. So just like David looks back, and looks to God and, and makes a profession of faith. Lord, you are good. You have been good to me. That's what he says in verse 6. I will sing his praise for he has been good to me. We can see him looking back to these markers of God's faithfulness. So in closing, I'll just end with this. I would say that God is faithful. So exercise faith when you can't see how God is in control. In all circumstance, against all sin, over Satan, and any who aim to do you harm. So exercise faith by questioning God. Exercise faith by calling upon him. And exercise faith by waiting upon God. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as broken vessels. None of us are okay but the goodness of your grace and mercy is that you free us up to understand that it's okay to not be okay. Even in the midst of doubt and despair, even in the midst of unbelief, Lord, you are still faithful and true. And Lord, your desire is not for us to retreat from you, but rather to run to you as children, to cling hold of you, to, to proclaim with boldness the things that we're fearful of, Lord, to, to ex give expression to our doubts, to give expression to our unbelief. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to come to you. Help us to be honest with you and with one another as we navigate this difficult thing called life. But more than anything, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us and cover us in, in your grace. Lord, give us the peace that passes all understanding.
Help us to be rooted in the firm foundation of your character. And Lord, help us to cling and hold to your promises, knowing that you are good, you are faithful, and you are true. And it's in your son's glorious name we pray. Amen.